Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Just Conversations with Jamal and Nate. I'm Jamal Adams. And I'm Nate Sessoms. Welcome back, and thank you for joining us. For those of you who might be new to this space, Just Conversations is a podcast that's positioned at the nexus of faith and all matters pertaining to race, justice, and Catholic education. We highlight historical and current happenings in the realm of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and anti-racism, while focusing on solutions, system changes, and the amplification of voices working to create a more just and egalitarian society for all. Each episode, we engage in authentic yet provocative dialogue seasoned with critical perspectives, scholarship, and life experiences. We also conduct interviews and moderate panel discussions featuring campus and community leaders, interrogate issues related to mission and identity, and answer live questions from listeners. Ultimately, we aim to increase levels of awareness while normalizing conversations on all forms of oppression and marginalization. We ascribe to the idea that there's room for everybody in the movement. So no matter how much you know or don't know, we invite you to engage with us. After all, these are just conversations. And as a reminder, we love to hear your ideas and thoughts. So make sure you send us a note at justconversations at ignatiansolidarity.net. Again, that's justconversations at ignatiansolidarity.net. Brother Nate, how we doing, bro? Brother Jamal, I am great. How you doing, my friend? I'm beyond excited. Uh, you know, uh, yeah. thinking is still buzzing from our last guest. Oh, uh, man. Incomparable. Uh, Miss Deverall uh, from Cleveland, Ohio. Yes, and, yes, uh, yes. And today we have another, you know, I think part of our extended family coming to rock yeah. with us. So this is always a good day. Absolutely. I think, I think uh, as our first guest, Dr. Deverall set the stage uh, and a high standard, but I know that uh, today's guests will uh, will not only meet but exceed that standard. So I'm excited as well, my friend. Looking forward to this for a long time. Well, you know, uh, I must admit that it's interesting that we're we're doing this on the pod because uh, I think when I first met you, Nate, I kept threatening you that you had to meet my <laughs> other brother. Uh, and uh, and and though it's interesting because of the pandemic, I don't think we've been in the same physical space. Uh, as all three of us together, right. uh, what buoys my heart is that I know you two cats got a chance to meet without me, and Absolutely. it seemed to flow like water, um, or like a perfect, you know, uh, a couplet or sonnet. You see me trying to drop my little like foreshadowing here. I see. I see. But but I'm super excited. So let me let's get to it. Um, I'm just beyond excited um, to introduce our guest um, to the incomparable uh, F. Douglas Brown. Um, I'm read a little bit of his bio and then I'll get into the kind of the particulars that make him so important to me. But uh, Doug is the author of two poetry, poetry collections, Icon, which was uh, published on Writ Large Press in 2018, and Zero to Three, which was published uh, by the University of Georgia Press in 2014. He is the winner of the 2013 Cave Conum Poetry Prize selected by U.S. Poet Laureate Tracy K. Smith. He's also co-authored, uh, co-authored with poet Jeffrey Davis, Begotten, um, released on UBR Brooks in 2016, a chapbook of poetry as part of Floodgate Poetry System um, series. Doug's an educator of over 25 years and currently teaches African-American poetry and African-American studies at Loyola High School in Los Angeles, where he also serves as the director of the Office of Equity and Inclusion. He's both a Cave Conum 
and Cootie Monfellow, and he'll expand on what those are in a little bit, which I think are really important about um, who he is, um, as selected by the poets and writers um, as one of their 10 notable debut poets in 2014. His poems and essays have appeared in numerous journals and anthologies, such as the Academy of American Poets, the PBS NewsHour, the Langston Hughes Review, uh, the Virginia Quarterly, and the teach and a book called Teaching Black, The Craft of Teaching on Black Life and Literature. He's also the co-founder and a curator of two reading series, uh, which I've had the great pleasure of, of attending. The first, Unfatable, The Requiem for Sandra Bland, which is a quarterly reading series examining the restorative justice through poetry as a means of addressing racism, and the Friday Framework through Hidden Timber Books, where Brown serves as the poetry editor. The Friday Framework connects three BIPOC poets whose works serve as both a springboard for a greater understanding of the self, while also providing an example of how fearlessly how one fearlessly encounters, excuse me, counters the rest their work addresses or may have been created under. When he's not teaching or writing, he's with his children, Isaiah, Olivia, and Simone, or he's busy DJing in the greater Los Angeles area. Um, beyond that, uh, you know, I don't know if there's enough words to express just how much I love this brother. Uh, our relationship started, I gotta say, 15, 16 years ago with a glance across the courtyard at Loyola High School. Uh, I think, um, I always think uh, I say, or a hip hop phrase that real recognizes real and immediately uh, Kendrick spirits were created. Um, I cajoled Doug into joining my uh, basketball staff at Loyola High because I knew I just wanted to be around him as much as possible. He became an integral part of our, our family's life and, and currently serves as my son's godfather. Um, and then beyond that, you know, is uh, just has always been, I would say, my conscience. Um, I don't think there's been a, a major decision in my life over the last 15 or 16 years that I've made without the consultation of this brother's great wisdom. Um, I love him dearly. And, and the last thing I'll say is that uh, I think his greatest gift to me is he push, pushes me to think critically about my place in the world. And um, um, you know, you have friends, um, you often hear people have a lot of friends that are just kind of yes men in their corner. Um, and what I, I admire or cherish, I think it's the right word in Doug is that, um, he gives me the real all the time, straight 100, no chaser. Um, and even, like I said, it's caused me to push me myself out of my comfort zone. I don't think of myself as a creative, but being around this brother, he has encouraged me to write. And uh, I'm proud to be a co-author of the essay that is in Teaching Black from him. And probably one of the most out-of-body experiences of my life, and I'll stop here, is that uh, he encouraged me to read at a poetry event in South Los Angeles one night that had my knees knocking. I was so nervous. Uh, but he just kept telling me with all the love in the world that I could do it, um, that folks would be inspired by what I had to talk about. And I talked about the art that my mom makes in quilting. Um, it was, I don't think it was poetic necessarily, but it was from the heart and the response was like overwhelming. It was so overwhelmingly positive that I think I might've shed a tear or two on the ride home. So, um, without further ado, uh, yes, I can't yes, imagine yes. a better thought partner to bring yep. to this podcast and to coincide with my other brother, Nate Sessions, being, uh, my boy, Doug, AKA Dougie Fresh. 
the mic is yours. <laughs> Doug. Oh my God. Doug. Thank you both. Yes, sir. Hey, what's up? What's Nate up? Jamal, welcome, welcome. One day, one day we'll be together, right? <laughs> is that, is that uh, a song doing this by live. Diana Ross or something? <laughs> this is, that's right. That's it right here. We're going to drop a lot of music today. So, um, you know, first and foremost, thank you two for doing this. I think it's so important. Uh, I did my homework and listened to, you know, most of the shows and just really impressive. Uh, obviously, who, what you two and what you two give. Um, but, you know, just blown away by your wisdom and uh, just everything that you guys give and, and appreciate you, both of you and, and AJ in the back there. AJ for one critique because Jamal set it up for me. Uh, you know, one critique. Get AJ's face on the website. Put him up there. Yeah, him up. That's AJ, real. That's AJ, real. Some, love. Him some love. Yeah. We do need to get him some AJ love. Some That's love. real. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but thank you, thank you both for for having me here. This is an honor, uh, and, and especially because it's National Poetry Month. And, Absolutely. Uh, you know, Nate, I'll tell you this. Uh, you know, jo I always say Jamal is my toughest student. Uh, you know, I had the brother writing on his phone and then once he started going, you know, he, he's just such a natural storyteller right. and, and, you know, uh, he talks about that reading Nate, but man, everybody was like, darn these poems, get Jamal back up. <laughs> <laughs> and he just really like moved right. the crowd and it was, I yeah. was just blown away and right. how, how he weaves his story. So Jay, I appreciate you for saying that. But yeah, man, it's all love, and, boy. Yeah. All love. And, yeah. and one day maybe we'll come back and like talk about specifically the the essay and and maybe as a launch as a book. You know, Nate could write that intro for us. Yes, <laughs> Absolutely, <sir>. I'm <laughs> there. I'm there for it for sure. Uh, so I appreciate you guys, man. So thank you for having me. Thank yeah, you so D, me. why don't you illuminate a little bit about your life journey that that yeah. that arrives, the things that aren't in your bio that. Yeah. You know, I find so fascinating. Right. Right. So, uh, you know, immediately when we all met at, at individual times, like, I just felt like we are kin, right? And mostly right. probably because we come from the same or similar places. Me in San Francisco, I grew up in an area called Hunter's Point, which is uh, slowly uh, becoming more and more gentrified. But back in the day, mm -hmm. uh, I would call it like the Watts or, or Compton of San Francisco. Uh, and, uh, you know, filled with good people, obviously, but uh, also filled with, with some issues. Uh, I, I can't count. I was telling this to my son uh, on my hands and toes, like, uh, uh, and, and then some, and somebody else, and, and his hands and toes, how many folks I grew up with who are no longer with us, uh, including, including my stepbrother who died when I was a, a freshman in high school. And that really kind of changed my trajectory. Uh, you know, I was the one who, uh, because I played sports, sports gave me the gateway to, to be out of those realms and be out of a gang, and, and it gave me a pass, right? It gave me a pass all the time. Uh, and I'm probably like the same height I was like in seventh grade, so they really thought I was going to be the <laughs> dude, right? Um, but it, it just gave me a gateway. It gave me a pass, and uh, I went to a Catholic school there in San Francisco called Hollows. Uh, for grade school and I mean my whole life has been like just living diversity you know I was telling somebody like oh hollows was probably it was uh, part black Filipino and Samoan and you sprinkle some Latinx folks up in there and that's who we were um, and so growing up in a black community but with that many faces 
who looked different from you made a big difference for me. And then uh, I went to uh, Archbishop Reardon, uh, all boys school, and then the Santa Clara University of Jesuit school. So like all of those things I ride with every single day, like those identities and the things that made me uh, every now and then uh, it'll come out on my students and they'll say, Hey, Mr. Brown, why, why, how come when you get mad at me, get, get mad at us, you sound like ice cube. I'm like, well, <laughs> let me tell you where I'm from <laughs> a little bit. And, uh, and so it all kind of comes out and manifests in, in, in an everyday way. Uh, I've been a teacher, like you said, like 25 plus years. And I started like you, Jamal, I started at my alma mater Reardon and, you know, I was there until I went to grad school. Uh, I was, and I've, I've been at every kind of place you can think of to teach at a charter school, different public schools, community college, university. Uh, you know, recently I taught a, a graduate school at UC Irvine. Uh, and so that's been a big deal. And, and I've gotten to do that really because I've become a writer and I've learned how, how to put those things down. So when I was at Santa Clara, I had a mentor teacher who uh, uh, I was probably, you know, it was like two of us, two of us who are African-American who were writing at the time. And, you know, uh, the other cat was younger than me. So this teacher really took a liking to me and put me in front of other students, put all of us in front of other students. And uh, at that moment, like so many people say that poetry, you know, it's just words. It doesn't really change lives, but I saw it. I really saw it change lives and, as a young, uh, as a young kid, coming in there mentoring uh, uh, a school at, in San Jose, these kids were cutting class, you know, ready to drop out, and then we start doing poetry in their class and talking about them and their life. The the attendance improved, mm. uh, their confidence improved, like all of the things that, as teachers, we aspire our students to be. I saw a poem put that in front of a kid and put that in a kid rather. Uh, and, and I was moved. I was young myself. I was probably like four years older than them. They didn't even know that. And, you know, poetry helped me really kind of grow up. Um, I want to read a piece about that, that kind of delves into it. And this is a, uh, and, and it kind of brings all of those things together. Um, I'm reading a piece. Uh, really, this is not a poem, but it's poetic. Uh, and, and it's an application. Usually when you go to Cave Canem and Kundiman, um, you have to apply to those. And Cave Canem is an international African-American, uh, they call it the, the House of African-American Poetry and Letters, and it really is responsible for uh, so many lives in African-American letters being, being uh, talked about. So if you look at uh, anybody in the 90s who African-American poets who've won Pulitzer Prizes or, or National Book Awards, they've been connected to Cave Canem. Uh, and as an affinity space for, uh, for writing, uh, so many other organizations have come from that and have observed what Cave Canem has done for the past 25 plus years. Uh, and so Kundiman is an Asian American uh, affinity writing space um, that really looks at not just poetry, but nonfiction and, and uh, a fiction as well. So I want to read a piece that uh, got me into Kundiman here. This is called Kave Kundi I Dig. 
I have been both Kaveh Kanam and Kundiman from day one. Black father, Filipina mother. I am a plate full of collard greens and Denny Guan. To write for me is to share, to open my heart and prepare for surgery, to understand, to do as Emily Dickinson put it, because I could not say it, I fixed it in verse. To write is to write the right and not only the wrongs. This is unbeknownst to my working class daddy and artist mother when they meet, each attractive in the gloomy light of the early 70s. Since the second grade, I have imagined their meeting, their brief union, the hows and whys of being half black and half Filipino build every time someone says, you have good hair. I have led this duality and I am very much aware of its wonderful impact on me. Mr. Brown, you need to check one box only. You can't choose both. My life has forever been outside the category boxes. I am the freedom riders in the South and the picket lines and chain bodies that keep to the eye ho that keep the eye hotels doors open for at least an extra month in San Francisco. A Pinoy Panther, if you will, at birth. My art has captured this duality, which really is a oneness. My skin color, my name has always touched the paper, ink on paper. What I have learned is that this is not a reduction. To say black or African-American, to say Filipino, to say half black and half Filipino, to say Cave Kundi opens the interior world of mine, a mine of exquisite resources. Cave Kanam gave me a shovel to dig deeper than I could or ever would have imagined. Kundiman offered me a pick to break through the deepest parts of me I had yet to explore. Kave Kanam reminded me that there's a rich diversity within African-American culture. All skin ain't kin, and isn't that beautiful? Despite the world, for better or for worse, that has collectively shoved and pigeonholed us, we are a varied race. We love our jazz and our hip hop, but even amongst those, a great diversity exists. I wanna explore diversity within my other half and the half I have always checked, the half that expands from island to golden state, the half that still pulses through my son and both daughter's veins. What will pulse and radiate from being a Kundiman fellow? For me, Kundiman is not merely a grad school edit or cultural redux or MFA with ethnic twists. It is a springboard towards the interior. To be a Kundiman fellow will expand my ways to use my writing voice, a voice I thought I had lost until Kave Kanam reminded me it did exist. To be a Kundiman fellow is an excavation, a microscope looking underneath my pores. What are you really trying to say? What are you needing to say? What are you afraid of saying? These questions help me unpeel the layers of my experience, which I bring a wide range to a wide range of listeners. I want to represent Kundiman and begin to explore the world with new eyes. 
I want Kundiman to unearth these questions in me so my art will not take a back seat to my teaching, my students, my family, my lifetime of excuses. I want Kaveh Kanam and Kundiman to be the brown of brown hymns on paper, both praising the truest parts of me. I'm going to stop there um, because I think that that kind of says it all, right? And I'm probably thinking, hey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that mic is hot. Snap. That mic is hot. That Snaps. mic is hot, brother. Bars. That mic is hot. Doug, that is. I mean, there's so many things to uh, to respond to in that in that piece. I know you weren't uh, finished, but but one of the things I heard you say uh, or, or mm-hmm. uh, provide reference to is this idea of unpeeling your own layers, mm-hmm. right? Uh, uh, um, understanding who you are, um, and that's that's so important. Jamal and I often talk uh, on the podcast about you know, work in the realm of, um, mm-hmm. of, of DEI and anti-racism is really about understanding yourself first. Right. So I, I love hearing that, um, expressing in, in that particular piece. Um, so, so as you know, Doug, our, um, our audience for the podcast is, is pretty diverse. Um, you know, a lot of people from different high schools, uh, colleges, students, faculty, staff, administrators, uh, lay people. Um, and so we've been talking about this idea in the post George Floyd era, there's this conversation taking place in Catholic education uh, around curricula, right? And, and the efforts to increase uh, or include uh, diverse voices, provide different perspectives. I'm, I'm wondering, as I hear you read that piece, you know, what are your thoughts on the role of storytelling as a useful platform um, in terms of general DEI work or uh, curriculum building? I think it is... Uh probably the most important part of it is to teach students how to tell whatever their story is. And I think, uh, you know, when they get to going, uh, get ready to go to college, they, they are trying to create that narrative, right. That kind of sets them apart. And so much, as you know, uh, with students in high school life in particular is to find that connection. And then we find it find and, and pull them apart and say, and to celebrate that difference in them, right? And to tell their own story, their own individual story. And, and I guess that's my whole teaching is really a lifetime about that. And uh, I think in order to tell your story first, uh, what I also think is crucial in DEI work is being able to listen to a story and to be able to sit still mm. with the story and, mm-hmm. and to really pay attention to mm-hmm. how that story manifests and on the page, but really in your ear and in your heart and, and, and that line to your heart. Uh, you know, one of the things that uh, uh, I try to, you know, the, in the poetry class that I teach, they're all seniors. And what I try to do is uh, make them unlearn the things that I taught them, some of them as sophomores of how to analyze just with their head. And they need to understand and analyze the poem from their heart, which is to say, you really just need to stop and listen. You really just need to figure out how you can be still to receive those words on the page. And if I could construct, then uh, with all my colleagues, construct ways to get students to listen to one another, that's, that's doing anti-racist work, that's doing anti-bias work right there, you know, and, and from jump. And so 
um, you know, that's what I was trying to do and trying to always amplify, you know, for me, uh, I grew up with my mom who, who, uh, who didn't look like me and, uh, I had to pay attention to that. So I always say the number two thing with poetry is to pay attention, to be observational. And I think that same thing with storytelling, right? We all love a good story. And this is why you tell a good story, Jamal. Like you really understand like uh, like how to, who's listening, how they're listening, where to raise the, the level of the story, you know, and how to give your full self to it, which I think is just really number three. So I would really, like if I think about those things, like just, just understanding how to listen and get to the heart how to uh, uh, really uh, kind of be observational, right? And build in things that are observational and then really like try to connect like uh, this really this passion and this joy for it. Uh, I think it's possible, you know, uh, for me to do that. And I think for, for educators to do that. Um, and, and because you're, what you're going to find is that you won't be bored, right? We get mm-hmm. to a point where we feel like we've been doing this and I'm going to just kind of mail it in. And then you'll find also that uh, your your students will find themselves engaged in it because it's really about them. Like it's it's not just you trying to tell them something or force something to them for some test or essay or whatever it is. It's really about them and how to unlock themselves. Oh, this story really is about me. I get that now. I see that now. And I mean, I was always fortunate that that's the way I saw my major. And, and and so that's the way I saw my profession. And so all of the things that I put together that, you know, people try to push back and, and talk about CRT, this and that. And it's really like, no, all this is about is how can we listen to one another and be in relationship with one another? Uh, and I found that through poetry. So uh, that's beautiful. As, as always, man, lyrical and poetic. So um, off to a wonderful start. Uh, We're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we're going to dig even deeper into the way that Doug processes and thinks about things and even ask him to think about his creative process. So stay tuned. Join the Ignatian Solidarity Network in New York City or via live stream on Wednesday, April 27th for Ignite, a celebration of justice. We'll be honoring Father Brian Massengale, racial justice scholar, and Marie Dennis, international peace advocate, with the Robert M. Holstein Faith Doing Justice Award for their years of work to build a more just and equitable world. Hear from these honorees and more while uplifting and supporting the work of the Ignatian Solidarity Network. Tickets, sponsorship opportunities, and more information are available at igsoul.net forward slash ignite. That's I-G-S-O-L dot net forward slash ignite. We hope to see you there. Welcome back. Uh, again, terribly excited to have our brother. Yes, sir. Um, the man of the hour, uh, poet, community leader, activist, and just all around G, Doug Brown with us today. Dougie, I want to kind of build off of your eloquent remarks around storytelling and the idea of the exchange of listening, mm-hmm. authentic self, all those type of things. Um, I think it really dovetails into one of our previous episodes actually multiple previous episodes where Nate mm-hmm. and I have talked a lot about 
reviewing and reflecting on one's positionality. I think you put it even better than we could have, talking about the springboard to the interior. Mm-hmm. Um, but how those positionalities, our cultural history influences, um, are important as we enter into the social justice work, because that's a framework that we we peer through. Um, and um, I, I want to kind of get into this opportunity and give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about your process. But I, I want to back up and just say, like, um, um, I talked about it in my intro about your invitation to me to kind of to write. And it really built off of a question. I think I was like summer school this was where we always had some free time. Um, and uh, I think we both were kind of like mm-hmm. still processing between the world and me by Ta-Nehisi Coates mm-hmm. and where that resonated with us. And mm-hmm. very similar to this podcast, Ta-Nehisi is about the same age as all three of us, mm-hmm. similar, mm-hmm. you know, inner city, urban background. And then it's kind of like now critiquing the world. And, um, I think I don't remember who asked the question. It probably was you. It was like, "What is the black aesthetic?" And we filled up two whiteboards mm-hmm. about what it meant to be black and male and this and that. And and I just think about mm-hmm. so often that in that 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 deal, right? Our essay is letters back and forth to each other about the influences that made us want to teach, want to teach like African American mm-hmm. subjects, me history, you poetry, in a predominantly white space. Um, and I just thought it was like. When I think about it, and I'm, I'm I'm still spinning off of the pot, uh, the Zoom we jumped on with with, with Dre and Lara, and the feedback we got about our oh, essay oh from some God. phenomenal poets. Um, I'm just thinking about it. At the at the crux of that was, you know, I think you asked me to think about my identity and my journey, and that was what you told me to write to. You're talking to Nate about writing in my phone and then taking the paper, but you just kept saying, yeah. "Jay, tell your story. What influenced you? What made you want to do those things?" and um, so I'm going to I'm going to um turn the mirror back to you Dougie and my question really is when you think about your creative process um what is that first and then and then how does it influence your work? I know you talked a little bit about your teaching. I might ask if I could mm-hmm. if I could push on you a little bit. How does it your creative process the way you uh you know practice your art influence the way you do your work as a director in the DEI and A space? Right. Thank you for that question so much. Um, because, uh, and I, I think I really need to write this down in, in a more kind of formal way about this. If, if I were to ever go back and, and get a dissertation, this is, would be really the question on it. And like how creative process uh, really helps uh, folks do this DEI work, you know, because really, I think if we want to start with Tanahasi or even before that, I think uh, for me, creativity is is, is not an I, I has to be the the only thing. My approach to everything that I do, I don't care if it's putting a tank a gas a, a, a in my car, or I don't care if it's me teaching a class or talking to you guys or being with my my kids. Whatever it is, I gotta approach it from a creative way. And, and luckily, my mother was was an artist, and I, I for sure get that from her. And I even think that in this work, uh, it's the same way. And it's when the lack of creativity happens is when uh, is when bad things happen. So, like, what what was it in George Zimmerman that hit reduced Trayvon to to one thing and one thing only? Where was his creativity in trying to understand who that young brother was, mm-hmm. right? And he couldn't mm-hmm. see him in any other kind of way. And we could go down the line all the way uh, 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 to, to 
you know, uh, George Floyd or to whomever else. Uh, and it's just this lack of creativity on who we are as people and, and that kind of put things um, in a negative space here. And so that has to be my approach towards it all. And so when I'm uh, up against an issue, uh, whether it be in the classroom where I'm trying to figure out something for my students or a way to, to uh, promote uh, uh, DEI work and whatever it is, say, uh, trying to have uh, better relationships and, and trying to understand uh, what our LGBTQ students might need or, or how to help uh, uh, promote uh, women's voices here at an all-male institution, I think I got to approach it with creativity. And so what does that mean exactly? So like for you, so, I, you know, I kid and say, well, Jamal was my toughest student. It's because, Jay, like with you, understanding you, you're like a doer. you like a mover. And so like to sit you down, it's just not going to work. And so what I, I did, I, I just watched you for a minute. And I was like, Jamal, you know what you need to do? You always got your phone. You know, whenever you get a thought, just type it in or maybe do a voice recording. And once you saw that and had that happen, it broke you wide open. And next thing you know, here's the essay. And, I, and then I had to catch up with you, right, and to all of the things. And <laughs> yep. it's just that finding someone's way to, to be creative and a way for me to be creative uh, and an approach. So my own personal process has changed. And I, I used to be really rigid with it, that it had to be this one way and then a poem would come, right? And I'm old school, and so I like pen to paper, uh, and I still like pen to paper, and it really just kind of, again, slows me down and helps me think. But, uh, you know, I wrote a book about my namesake, Frederick Douglass, and it was really difficult, right? And growing up with the name, you know, uh, Frederick Douglass, uh, and seeing all those pictures, you guys know, when, you, when you're a little kid and you see those pictures of Frederick Douglass looking stern, you're like, nah, I'm not messing with that cat, right? And, and that's what he wanted you to know, right? And that, 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 that was real. Right? That's real. That's uh, and it's like, that's your name. And so, like, part of me was, like, nervous right. to have that. Could I ever live up to that? Uh, and definitely, the, you know, to this day, I say the answer is no. But I think also, I think what Douglas was trying to do with that look was trying to inspire you, like, yo, hey, this is, I'm not just, this is your look that you should be wearing on your face too in these times and these situations. And so uh, trying to figure out who Douglas was was so difficult. And when I went to Kundiman, uh, I had a professor, uh, her name is Kamiko Han, a poet, Japanese poet. And she was, uh, she was like, did this practice called Zuhitsu. Remember Jay and I came back and I talked mm -hmm. about it in your class. Yep, and the yep, idea of Zuhitsu yep. is to, you know, in writing, we were trying to be specific. Kamiko was like, no, go back and, and be abstract and find these abstract categories that you want to find and then write to those categories. And she said, when, uh, when you're doing the research on Frederick Douglass, do the same thing. And what, happened, what was happening was I was doing the research for Frederick Douglass and it was coming out too much like an essay or too much of his voice and not enough of poetry. And then when Kamiko taught me the Zuhitsu method and, and the idea of Zuhitsu is to be random with these categories, I had these random categories and then I would read about Frederick Douglass and then it really started to make sense and started to become poetry uh, uh, and, and then the poems came out of it. So um, thinking of that, and, and that's become my process when I'm not writing to do a Zuhitsu let the zuhitsu let be random and then all of my 
creativity Amen. can come to place and not just being one creator for this one poem. Like one Zuhitsu might yield three poems. One Zuhitsu might yield two poems right. or one poem. Um, and then, you know, uh, it starts to make sense. And so I want to read to you all this one piece because I think aligning and reconciling with the DEI stuff is really um, how can I be in relationship, as I said, but also how can I be my most authentic self? Uh, and what's something that I learned uh, from you, Jamal, for sure. Um, you know, uh, uh, and just a really quick side note before I read this, a couple years ago, uh, before I published anything, you know, a book or anything, a friend had said to me, like, you know, you're this and you're that for these people and you're this and that for this group of people. Like, we just need to see you, your most authentic self. How can you align those things? And when he said that to me, I was like, yes, okay, I'm going to be all of the things because that's how I did. And when I did that, I think that started to make sense. And this is kind of a way uh, to do that. And, and just one little one little introduction about this. Uh, I allude uh, to the funk. And you guys know, and we're going to talk about music here, uh, that funk music uh, really did something for our people. Uh, and I think funk music was one uh, um, a music that really uh, helped uplift us in a time of great, great depression. And the depression from, you know, MLK mm -hmm. uh, being killed uh, after Malcolm X, um, the end of the civil rights movement. We needed something to uplift our spirits, and that was funk, right? And uh, Toni Morrison used to write about funk music or, or the idea of the funk uh, being like this idea of a, uh, a way of disrupting alienation, being soulful, a way to embrace one's truest self. And so I'm going to read this thing here. It's called The Funk as Testimony, an essay in verse. Uh, and I'm going to rock a few lines from it. And uh, if it gets long, you know. Then it'll just be long, brother. Go for it. It'll just be long because we need to hear from Funk as testimony, an essay in verse. People, my people, when you hear this, I hope the OJs will be in your ears. I hope all their shooby-doos ring out to our neighborhoods and to our classrooms. I want to tell you as a teacher, I witness and watch for both the error and the in the eruption of wit to spring off the page. Call the moment when text, when teaching, when information, when exchange all registers and meets up to sing. When energy is centered so intently on the subject, we hum a tune and dance. Call that moment the funk. Call that moment community, communion. Call that moment soulful. Call it embracing one's truest self, full-bodied self. Call it disrupting the alienation happening outside of the spaces we think we claim. Classroom, book, poem. Yes, poem. We've all felt that surge move through us when we write, when we ignite a vision. We can do the camera work, but can we push a detail to catch dust or push a sunset or gather all the greens in on a pine's needles? We can do all the noticing. 
camera work desires, but to what end and for whom? This is when I lean towards Amiri Baraka, who says the artist's role is to raise the consciousness of the people, to make them understand life, the world, and themselves more completely. A poet friend reminds me, I've been doing this for a while, which is to say, as Carver said, I've seen some things, which is to say, I survived, which is to say, I am here to testify. Can a testimony ring the funk of an experience or a detail? When my friend's reminder hits, what I hear is not only his outward gaze, but a way of seeing his heart. The way Alice Walker says, watching your child is like seeing your heartbeat outside of your body. Can a testimony be both exterior and interior all at once? Not an easy answer, nor easy task for even our funkiest of folks. Many right here on this Zoom, right together with us. (laughs) Yes, sir. Not an easy task for those of us still on the margin. Our best BIPOC, queer, feminine, non-gender, non-binary lives are stifled, at risk, endangered, erased, alienated, preyed on by the thing, as Morrison labeled it. The thing which removes or defamiliarizes one from community, joy, or experiential an experimental and substantive love. The thing that privileges, the thing that privileges our stance or step back to only watch. Would we teach? Are we negating an experience when we couch a topic of family or voice into a question of craft? Are we favoring camera work over heart work? Are we silent when our students commit this to other students in our presence, thus in our favor? When we workshop, are we negating the long sleepless nights and loneliness of walking into a classroom where no one looks like me? Are we dismissing the therapy and fear and silence built up over time when we say, you have some craft issues, or I've seen poems like this, or did your grandmother really speak this way? What has one done to bring those black words on the page to be answered in Jane Cortez? Don't ask me who I'm speaking for, who I'm talking to, or why I'm doing what I do in the light of my existence. Don't say you are not authentic or ponder the philosophy of pain or don a mask or speaker or perspective without doing the due diligence to know where that face, that voice hails from. Know the road a title took when someone writes about Orlando or Ferguson or lynching or growing up fearing their father, his gaze and his grab, 
his fists or growing up while their father is gone? Know that difficulty before we send a comment out loud for all to hear, ponder the difficulty to name the thing the way Mahogany Brown's working title does. The name of this poem is How to Teach Your Babies to Walk and Not Run, Ever. Or the name of this poem is How to Walk the Streets Without Fearing Someone Will Cut Your Neck Open. Or How to Write the One Time You Had a Gun Pointed at Your Face. So many ways to title. I wish we just say Sandra Bland or Tamir Rice or Stefan Clark and not the black body. The world should deal names, their lives. But sometimes a poem reminds me we do not own this acknowledgement of somebody's or someone's premature destruction. And so we have to treat a subject with extreme tenderness and caution. And so we have to treat a subject with extreme tenderness and caution. And if not, then do what Ishmael Reed urges. Back off from the poem. It is a greedy mirror. Friends, we know the acrobatics of a poem is decorative design, is steadfast yet succinct narration. We know what power our imaginations wield. But can we stop ourselves a bit? Can we find the craft tool that marks the change on the page and use it to redirect our gaze so that what we watch goes beyond normal wit and whim? I love when I read Ross Gay's poem, Feet, or Jeffrey Davis' poem, King County Metro. Both lead us to what they perceive, dare I say, witness dare i say i've watched kids heads poke up from the desk when gay asks, do you really think i'm talking about my feet of course she's dead of leukemia or that moment when davis states two of four kids will arrive before he meets the friend who teaches him the art of roofing and soon after the crack pipe the attention it takes to manage either without destroying the hands. These turns, these voltas by its technical craft term switches us and them from camera to heart work. This work tells us none of us can be beyond reproach. And so I'll end by telling you I am writing this while in front of a mirror, standing with these four questions. In the face of erasure, how have we learned to keep ourselves and those we love safe? How am I questioning privilege, especially my own, and ensuring equality for the voiceless? When the time comes, how will I use my words as a means to actively affect change? And last, what lessons have been offered to me that I need to pass on to students or loved ones in general? Four 
questions I ask you, but I, that I'm really asking myself. Thank you. My dog. <laughs> my friend. My, all I would say is my friends are dope. <laughs> Man, that, that, my friends that, are dope. That that that, that mic is us. melted. That mic is melted. I, it it almost it, it it's unfair. But at, at, and we're gonna come back in in, in our next uh, session and, and and get into it and, and break a lot of that down. A lot of the wisdom you were sharing. But we're gonna take a break, a quick break right now. When we come back, we'll engage further with now poet, educator, and community leader, the great Doug Brown. We'll be right back. Are you someone who studies, teaches, or practices Catholic social tradition? Education for Justice is a global digital subscription membership service offering members access to a growing library of thousands of text-based and multimedia resources, a monthly e-newsletter, and other benefits to help you approach the world's headlines and the justice issues of our time through the lens of Catholic social teaching. Learn more at educationforjustice.org. Again, that's educationforjustice.org. We're back and engaged in our conversation with poet extraordinaire, Doug Brown. Doug, uh, I, I, I'm going to be honest. I, I hated to go to break just now because uh, you were on fire. Uh, and <laughs> and I, that, that piece you read moved me in, in, in a number of ways from, you know, uh, earlier before you even started the piece talking about creativity and our need to connect with our students, uh, for, for the educators out there who are listening and thinking about um, creative ways. You talked about creativity, driving everything you do, and the ways that creativity um, can be utilized in strategic ways to meet all of our students, right, who come from different backgrounds, have been socialized in different ways, uh, or are experiencing various types of pain. Mm -hmm. um, so I love that part. I also was, uh, uh, I thought it was very deep uh, just uh, the, the lines I, I'm struggling to be my authentic self I'm struggling to be in relationship with you um, and a lot of times that that is the the it's part of the challenge of doing DEI work is you know this this, this work can be very painful it's very fulfilling uh, when we're all in community but there are times where if you don't feel like you're a part of that community or that community is hearing your story or, or feeling your pain um it's hard to be your authentic self. So that moved me as well. Uh, and, and so, I, you know, I could go on forever, but but I, I'd love to come back to you and just ask simply um, in that piece you just read, what is it, what is it, how does it speak to you? Man, um, I think one way it definitely speaks to me is uh, trying to, to undo we waste a lot of time, BIPOC folks, we waste a lot of time having to undo what we learned in uh, graduate school, right? In an MFA program where many MFA programs want us to conform to something without really un listening and understanding who our true authentic selves are, right? And so these is affinity uh, writing programs like Kave Kanam and Kuniman uh, have sprung up to address that. And uh, my thing is, like, what if what if the writing school addressed it already? And, you know, I come from, like I mentioned with Kaveh Kanem, uh, a lot of those folks in the 90s who, who are winning these big awards, uh, you know, have have kind of changed the game. 
and and changing the landscape of what what American literature is. And so you have someone like Kevin Young, who is a part of uh, the Dark Room Collective, who is now you know the the first African American uh, uh, poetry editor of the New Yorker, and also the director mm-hmm. of the African American Museum in D.C. Right, the Smithsonian one. And so there you have somebody who's mm-hmm. understanding like his his most poetic self is really to be in uh, and to understand his own emotions and the emotions of those who might listen to his poems. And then he's tasked with trying to curate the ways we have uh, to make sure that to curate the ways that we will not be erased as African-Americans. Right. And like bringing those things together, I'm always just really, really appreciative of him and appreciative of that kind of work. But everybody, there's so many folks who are engaged in that. And I think the gatekeepers changed a lot uh, and, and, and changed the landscape, like I said, so uh, we could open up and hear other voices. That has been important to me. So my work in writing and DEI work really align those questions that I end with are, are the ways that I kind of check my privilege. You know, we're all, all of us, all of us as brothers, man, the three of us here, the way we grew up, is one way and our education and where we got to go has afforded us a a new privilege. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have to be aware of that all the time. And, you know, Jamal and I, you and I, we, we, we talk and we argue about with these young kids about their, (laughs) their hip hop. Right. But at the same time, like that kind of language that they're developing is something about that that obviously as old folks, we don't understand, but uh, it's also like for us to understand and parse that kind of language that they're bringing into the world is important uh, and to give them space to be able to express that. So I'll stop arguing with them. I stop arguing with them. You're a better man than me. You're a better man than me. (laughs) Well, because, I mean, and because they they throw it right back at us with music, You know what? What is the greats are really is like the longevity, and so somebody like Drake has has endured the time, and and you know he makes hits. Like I I can't deny that anymore. Like as much as I can now, do I need to buy that brother's music? No. Well, as a DJ, will I play his music? No. But I'm just saying, can I offer <laughs> my students a space to say? that Drake is the goat and I'm not going to like kick him out the classroom. Right. <laughs> I got to give him that space. I got to give him that space and, and just Damn, understand that. Um, Pri- privilege you know. and voices. Privilege right. And voice. Privilege and voice. Privilege and voice. I'm messing with so, you. No, there's, there's a lesson in that. There's a lesson in that for certain. Privilege and voice. And, and that's yeah. as far as it goes. I'll give him the space, but uh, you know, do I change my mind? <laughs> <laughs> It's my classroom, my rules. <laughs> now we can make it a debate, which really is, um, hey amen. At the point of everything we've talked about today, right? The idea, and I'm, a, I mean, I'm a, I'm gonna go down this rabbit hole a little bit about debating young folks on Drake versus maybe a Jay Z or a Nas, whomever we might think from our era. Um, the beauty in that, right, is that it, it creates, as you talked about, this authentic self, because. Jay Z and Nas um, reflected the world that I grew up in, and that's why I think yeah. I'm so embedded in that. Whereas I struggle with Drake, and um, but that that debate creates connection. Yeah, and I think mm-hmm. in terms of everything we talked about today, 
Um, I mean, there's so much wisdom in what you said in terms of giving them space and voice. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, me and have talked about it a lot, tying generations together and 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 seeing like, you know, though, though the battles and tools might be a little bit different, but that we are still talking about liberation Mm -hmm. and equality and and, and opportunity and Mm -hmm. authentic selves. That's where we can as kind of that middle generation connect with the younger generation and also then help our folks that are our elders yep. connect all the way back to the younger group. So yeah, right. I'm, I'm with you on that, Dougie. I know I'm messing yeah. around with you, but I'm really no, with and you. that's it right, right there. And that's the thing that brings it together. Like what gets passed on, right. And understanding right. that the, the lineage that a Drake li- uh, lives in, is it more important for me at this point than arguing whether they that is Drake the goat or not, because if they can't speak to the lineage, then I stop listening, right? So that's on me. That 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 then now uh, uh, mm. disrupts everything that I've talked about and everything that I bring in the cloud. So how can I make it where we're all listening? And then if I so if I could tie mm-hmm. Drake to somebody else, they could start to hear and just see Drake differently. So can I make them see that music and how that artist is already expanding that conversation? And they do too, right? I, I tell them all the time, like, hey, everything I listen to is at least 30 years old. Are you going to be listening to your music 30 years from now? And if you are, like, why? What's going to make it that? And, and, and then we know we start talking about the elements of music and whatnot. You know, um, and, and it's a beautiful way to connect, right? And you think about like how our parents, you know, one of my greatest things, Nate, I'll tell you this, one of my greatest playlists I ever made was for the Jamal Adams family <laughs> because, and it was so much pressure, Nate, because they were going to be in the car for like hours and to hear the music that I put together. And I just was like, man, I got to get Pam right. I got to get Jamal's dad right, right Jamal's right. mom, and Jamal right. too. Like, if I'm giving all of that and there's no drive right. ball questions. Right, some harsh critics. Right, and some harsh critics. It's yeah. going to be like, oh. Right, got to have some, some low-end theory in there. Gotta have it in there. No doubt. Greatest album of all time. Got to have of it in course. there. Of course. But that, you know, that's paying attention to a lot no. of things and, and, and a lot of places. And that's the beauty of, you know. And it was a bomb. It was oh, a bomb man. playlist. We listened to it on an eight-hour drive from LA to Tahoe. There you go. It, it rocked. I was like, hit. I was like, put this on uh, on shuffle and let it go. <laughs> yes, and let it go. <laughs> so, yeah. No, I think uh, I, I, I just, I just, I just wanted to drop in here as we're, as we're, uh, the three of us are connecting. Uh, that I hope the listeners uh, really appreciate uh, being on the inside of a conversation. Uh, between three brothers, uh, same age, uh, from different parts uh, of the country, but coming together to talk about storytelling. Um, on the outside, it might look like we're celebrating uh, National Poetry Month, uh, but but at the core of this, we're celebrating one of our brothers, uh, Doug Amen. Brown, his amazing work. And I just wanted to highlight that because I think these are the kind of conversations that uh, everyone is not privy to. And Jamal and I talk about that a lot. Like if people knew the kinds of things that we're talking about, they might say, oh, you know, I really wouldn't, I didn't, I really didn't think the two of them would be having that conversation or wow, I didn't really, I wasn't thinking they would be, you know, really breaking that aspect of life down. Um, so I hope people appreciate uh, this conversation and, and the realness, but also the, the, the uh, raw breadth and depth of it. So I just want to put that out there.
dope. I know we're getting uh, long on this podcast, but I'd be remiss, Dougie, if we didn't get a chance. So just, I'd love to hear you talk, if you could, briefly, because I want, hopefully, they'll listen to this. Give a shout-out to the project you're doing with uh, our guy, uh, Brian Carter, and the uh, the Jesu School in Philly, um, yeah. and, and how they've integrated your brilliance into what they're doing. Um, so... Uh, again, if you could give us, uh, I'm so impressed by what you got going on. So if you could highlight yeah. that or illuminate that, that would be dope for uh, us. The great Brian Carter. So, uh, yes, sir. Uh, many of the listeners may or may not know, uh, they should know, right, that Jamal was once at Loyola and once the director of the Office of Equity and Inclusion. And, uh, you know, I, I worked very closely with you, Jamal, as you know. Uh, and And now here I am. Uh, in your seat, right, in your old office, actually, coming with this. And so as passing it on, we went to we went to Cleveland, and they had a, a, a JSN uh, conference there for the DEI folks there. And, and Jamal, you were introducing me to everybody there. And uh, Brian Carter and I, we just, like, just – we sat at the table. We, you know, remember, we sat at the same table every 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 session, and Brian sat with us, uh, and Brian and Ed Beckett, uh, who are at the Jizu School in Philly. And I was just like taken with these brothers just right away. And, and Brian started telling me about his school. And I was just like awestruck by it because the school I mentioned earlier at the beginning, All Hollows, uh, it, it almost was like a mirror image in a lot of ways. And uh, then Brian went on to say that, uh, oh, and the current Youth Poet Laureate of Philadelphia is an alumnus of the Jizu School, and she's a senior in high school. And I was like, what? It's like, wait a minute. All right, now you're going into my other territory. I'm like, do you know, like, I work for the Youth Poet Laureate. I'm one of the judges for the L.A. one and for the national one. I'm like, you know, uh, uh, uh why am I going blank on her? Amanda Gorman. Amanda, I was like, Amanda, uh, Gorman. Amanda Gorman. I'm like, if you know yeah, Amanda Gorman, like I'm, the, I was the judge who put Amanda Gorman into the the L.A. L.A. Uh, Youth Poet Laureate, and then I was the judge on the national one too. My guy is the one who runs it nationwide, uh, Michael Sorelli, and I was like, and I'm going to be in Philly in March. We should do this thing, and so we went on. Uh, to do this. And what I really wanted to do was uh, that piece that I just read, Nate, was from this conference, AWP, Association of Writing mm. uh, Programs and Writers. And uh, the AWP this year was in Philly. And my idea was to bring poets, I was going to bring poets to the Jizu school. So, you know, that was the whole idea. We were talking about that in the summer. And then the pandemic did what it did. Um, and, and I couldn't in good conscience uh, ask poets and set up poets with Jizu if I knew they weren't going to be there uh, or couldn't be there in the flesh. And so I had, somehow I had to pivot. And one of the, again, there it is, that creativity. I had to get creative with it and uh, a, a little bit of a sense of controlling, trying to control this. I was like, well, I'm going to give it to my students. They're really the ones who should be in conversation with these students in the first place. And what, uh, you know, an act of anti-racism to teach students about African-American poetry. And so, again, they're not just consuming the poetry on their own. They're consuming it just to give back to some other student 
who may or may not uh, know those poets. And so that's what I did. And last semester, uh, these students created these amazing, uh, in both my classes, African-American studies and African-American poetry, they created these amazing uh, projects uh, that dealt with the book uh, Stamp, that remixed version uh, of Ibram Kendi and Jason Reynolds. Um, mm -hmm. And then uh, the African-American poetry class uh, did presentations based off uh, the Harlem Renaissance, the Black Arts Movement, uh, Kaveh Kanem, Dark Room Collective, the Dark Noise Collective, Black Girl Magic. Like we look at all of these different kind of nascent movements and, and movements of the past or African-American poetry uh, from the 20th century to now. And they created these uh, amazing presentations last semester and this semester. So I had all these presentations together and I gave it to them. So this week, the Jizu students who have an advanced writing program uh, that started, uh, that starts, I believe, when they're in the third grade all the way to the eighth grade. And, and the way that started, let me just tell this quick story. There's a, their top students. So what Jizu does is they'll put their students in, uh, you know, the traditional Catholic schools and or, as you all know, as the East Coast, uh, you know, many of the prep schools in the area. And uh, their top student a few years ago, maybe it was like 20 years ago, uh, you know, they were really, really high on this one young woman and they wanted her to apply to, I forget the name of the school, and she didn't get in. And the principal is a nun and she's she's very like bold and she just straight up asked the admissions people like, what happened? This is our top student. How come she didn't get in? And um, they said, well, her writing wasn't up to par. and We couldn't let her in. And the nun went back and the sister Ellen is her name and sister Ellen went back and said, that will never be a response again. Like none of our students will ever have that as a barrier. And so they developed this advanced writing program that uses poetry, that uses prose, kids write essays. Uh, and so then I went there, I went there last two weeks ago and uh, I took a friend of mine and I think this is the best way to, to understand what this school is. My friend said, uh, Every every inch of this place has been touched by love. And and you could just tell what Brian Carter, Sister Ellen, and that uh, admin, faculty, and staff, what they create for those uh, students. They're 99% Black at the school. You know, it's in North Philly. Um, you know, everyone was, every Uber driver, cab driver was telling us to stay out of the North. And when we got to that campus, they're like, hey, you are in North Philly recognize this is a beautiful space and that's what i saw and these kids they were confident mm -hmm. they come up to you they introduce themselves they look you in the eye they shake your hand they all you know the way uh they had a uniform but the way they were dressed the uh they were you know just was really impressive uh the way they carried themselves was impressive their work was on all of the walls there were teachers pictures on the walls it was energetic. You just heard good teaching and good community happening here. And I was like so excited that I had done this with this school. And so this week, they have my students' presentations. And each one, we have one a day where they do a writing prompt in preparation. And some of them do the Zuhitsu, which I talked about. Some of them are writing poems. Some of them are doing story projects. And then at the end of this week, uh, you know, we have taken this idea of words matter and kind of grown it. Uh, we're going to have a poetry reading. 
where it's going to feature some of their students. Uh, I, have, I have contacted and done recordings uh, with three poet laureates throughout the country, the poet laureate here in L.A., the poet laureate of Orange County, and the poet laureate of Alabama. They all did recordings for me. Um, and then I have a, a, a recording from my friend Mahogany Brown, uh, all for this one youth poet laureate, uh, Andrea Rhodes, who's also going to read for us. So uh, that's the event. I'm so glad I did this. It was kind of like a, a, a proof of concept. And now it's grown to something that, that we're going to replicate throughout the year. And, and, and I could tell you, you know, with my students, there's been no senioritis. Like they get it. They're like, they understand what this is for, who it's going to. I showed them a video of the Jizu kids. I'm like, this is who they are. Like, and they're going to have, you're going to touch them and you're going to teach them. And, and I think this is just the way uh, uh, to go with these classes. So I had to be creative because my man Jamal wasn't there. Like one of the best things, and, and then man. we could talk, is that uh, what I really miss about Jay, and I'm glad to be here with you and Nate, is I miss us doing this, us being in conversation about what we do in the classroom and checking each other about it, being yeah. creative together. Yes. And I was like, how yep. can I do that? Yes. I was like, well, now I got to turn to my students. Of yep. course, they can't be the same as Jamal, but at least, you know, Jamal's a Loyola alum. Right. I could get that little aspect of it from them, and that's been it. Right. No, they could be right. better than me, too, though, because right. they got a different percentage. So, I mean, look, I miss you, too. Um, yes, sir. You know, um, and it's on me to close, but I, I definitely want to give some space. I, I feel like Nate might want to say a shout-out or give you some love. Then I'll close this out, and this has just been an amazing, amazing yeah. opportunity to record this. Yeah, no, I, I just want to, want to, uh, you know, tell you, Doug, I, I love you, man. I appreciate your work oh, so much. Thank you, love thank you for you being too, with brother. us. Um, and and just know that anytime, I mean, we we we'll definitely do this again. Uh, but just thank you for all you do. Thank you for the life that you are. Uh, thank you for all the work that you're doing. Um, you know, with the young people at Loyola, uh, with the faculty and staff there, and just in this space in general, uh, you truly are a, a warrior on the battlefield and, and just know you're greatly appreciated. Yes, sir. And uh, man, you know what it is. Blood couldn't make yeah. us any thicker. There is nothing um, I can't imagine like a breath on this earth without like your friendship. And so uh, till uh, the wheels fall off, brother, we'll be rocking, talking, creating changing inspiring um and really trying to leave this a better place for yep. our babies our That's babies right. babies um and the world uh, the world at large i do want to just revisit for our visitors i know it's a long deal but i just i'd be remiss i just want to read those four questions at the end of doug's second piece um as a reminder right this is doug's reflection about his space as a poet in this work um he asked these four questions of us in the face of erasure, how can we learn to keep ourselves and those we love safe? Question two, how am I questioning privilege, especially my own, and ensuring equality for the voiceless? When the time comes, how will I use my words as a means of actively, to actively effectuate change? And four, what lessons have been offered to me that I need to pass on to students or loved ones in general? Thank you for joining us again for Just Conversations. Mm -hmm. As a reminder, we'd love to hear your thoughts and ideas. So send us a note to Just Conversations 
at, at ignatiansolidarity.net. Again, that's just conversations at ignatiansolidarity.net. If you'd like to support the work of the Ignatian Solidarity Network that puts together podcasts like this today, today head over to ignatiansolidarity.net slash donate. I'll make a donation. Make sure you find us on iTunes and Spotify. Share this conversation. I think the best one we've done yet. Yeah. Share this yeah. conversation and others with those in your life that are engaged in DEI and anti-racism work. We look forward to continuing to connect with you all on this journey. For this place is about love and growth and our ways of being persons for and with others. Have a blessed rest of your day and we'll see you at the next episode.